Your coming here each week is really important because I believe you're learning um, from this wonderful Old Testament book. And, and uh, we come really tonight to the end of this book. We've been studying uh, this Old Testament book of Exodus since October 4th, uh, 2017. So we've been in this book over 14 months now, and God has taught us much. I hope that you and many of you that I see now, you've been here week after week, and you're learning um, this book and how important it is. Really, <clears throat> this book compared to a, a New Testament book is really key because it helps us to understand redemption. This Old Testament book of Exodus' theme is all about redeeming the fallen people, God's fallen people. And he redeems them in such a wonderful way. So what I've, I've chosen to do tonight, rather than to finish our study tonight, because we've got Christmas coming up, um, I'm going to break up our study into two uh, studies in the, over the next two weeks to finish chapter 40. And tonight we're going we're gonna to look, we're going to go all the way back to Exodus 1, and I'm going to remind you of, of this God's wonderful sovereign plan of redemption and, and just highlight. I'm going to give you highlights, and then tonight we'll get into chapter 40 in just the first few verses. So um, next week we'll see the, really the climax of the book, which is God's uh, glory, the Shekinah glory of God coming into the tabernacle the people have built. So we're going to see that next week, and we'll get into chapter 40 a little bit tonight. But, but I, again, I wanted to break this up into two weeks just because uh, there's a lot going on. And I just want to remind you, some of you that weren't in the study and some of you that can't remember 14 months ago uh, what, what we studied. So I, I just want to remind you of those things. So uh, we'll, we'll uh, look and uh, apply and look at the wonderful teachings that we discover here in Exodus. Let's ask God's blessing before we open the word. Father, so, we're so grateful that we have uh, your word, this living truth that we read and that we live upon, that we devour, that we eat, that we feed on us as your sons and daughters. It brings life to us, Lord, and we're so grateful for it. And this record that was written so many thousands of years ago by Moses and his experience with you and, and your divine, wonderful plan to redeem your people, it just really just teaches us so much of your love and your, your goal, which was to dwell with your people. And so tonight, I pray as we read these passages, as we look and recall these things that we've learned, that you would instruct us and help us and teach us, we pray in Jesus. Amen. Let's open up to uh, chapter one of Exodus. And just a real quick shout out to Tim Garcia. He, he had his uh, uh, hip replaced. As you know, he sits over here. You guys know Tim. And, and he's recovering really good. He's watching us tonight. Uh, but I just wanted to, you know, we love him and we're, we're praying. He should be here Sunday. It's amazing. You can get your hip replaced and you'll, you know, one week and the next week you're walking again. It's amazing. But we'll see him this week and, and on Sunday. But uh, again, let's, let's begin here in chapter one. I want to give you an overview of Israel's history. And we'll see that in the scripture. Again, Genesis, we studied uh, three years ago, four years ago. We went through the whole book of Genesis. And as we went through the book of Genesis, we learned the failure of man. Genesis is really the history of man's failure from Adam 
and Cain and all of humanity, except for Noah. Noah's a pretty good guy. And then, and then came the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can't say that they lived exemplary lives, although they, they had successes in their life, but they were human, and they blew it, and they failed. Abraham lied about his wife. His son Isaac lied about his wife. Jacob was gnarly. He was Jacob. Jacob became Israel. The children of Israel are who we follow into the book of Exodus. Exodus begins with the 12 sons of Jacob, or Israel is his name. Remember, his name got changed. He had wrestled with God, and his name was changed. So this, this uh, beginning of the book of Exodus is really uh, pivotal to understand really the whole Bible. But in Exodus chapter 1, we begin with the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Israel, and their, their families are growing. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 1. Again, this book of redemption, all about God redeeming his people. It begins in chapter 1, Exodus chapter 1, with the oppression and the slavery and the struggle that the, the children of Israel are under. They're under bondage. They came to Egypt uh, miraculously and wonderfully led there. Remember, there was a famine in Canaan, and, and there was no food to eat. And so uh, Jacob sent his sons down to get some food in Egypt. There was a prince there in Egypt, uh, a marvelous man, a, a man that, that uh, preserved food and, and ran the country, the right hand of Pharaoh. It just so happened to be it was Jacob's son, Joseph, as you recall. And that's how God got his family to finally get to the nation of Egypt. But Exodus begins where Genesis leaves off with Jacob's sons or Israel. Or, or I use all these terms and I'm trying to, to help you understand. Jacob, Israel, and the children of Israel, the 12 sons or the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, we just finished last week looking at the garment, the, the priest garment. What was on the ephod right here on the front, on the breastplate? Remember, there were 12 stones, and each stone had a name on it. Whose names were on it? The 12 sons of Jacob. Okay, so this all interrelates. It's important to understand uh, the background of all that, but it was in Egypt where Jacob is reunited now with his whole family, and his family is is uh, because uh, J Joseph is such a, a great man there in Egypt, second in command of the whole country. He is invited and his family to take this low bottom land, this area that has lots of water because Jacob and his family have always been herdsmen. They have sheep and goats and cows and bulls and all those things. They've always been herdsmen. So, so the, the Egyptians kind of separated the Hebrews, you know, they, they weren't really into that kind of thing. And so they let the the Hebrews kind of take over this bottom land. And the Hebrews have been very successful down there. In fact, they've been multiplying uh, down there. But it's in Egypt where uh, Joseph and his brothers are reunited. And uh, the 12 sons have grown to a, a great multitude. Now, this is important for you to understand because Exodus chapter 1 begins about 400 years after the end of Genesis, the end of the book of Genesis. So there's 400 years for these people, the sons of Israel, to multiply. And you'll remember that God had promised Abraham. God had promised Abraham that from he and Sarah, remember they were, he was, 
He was almost 100 years old when his son was born. God, you promised a lineage, a family, a great nation to come from me. And I don't have any kids. And Sarah said, what do you mean I'm going to be pregnant? Ha, ha, ha. She laughed and they named their child Isaac. Laughter. And so here we have in Egypt this family that is offspring of Abraham and the promise from Genesis 12. Here it is behind me on the screen where God tells Abraham, here it is, there it is, Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, get out of the country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So here's the promise, this covenant that God makes with Abraham. Number one, land, a land I'll show you. I will make you a great nation. So you have Abraham and his wife. You're going to be a great nation, God says. And remember, Abraham's like, right, I don't have any kids, I don't have any offspring. How's that going to happen? But this is God promising. And he goes on, he says, I'm going to bless you and make you a great name. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse him who curses you. And then the next promise is here at the end of verse 3 in Genesis 12, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the promises to Abraham, land, descendants, and all the families are going to be blessed, or this this blessing of redemption of mankind coming through Abraham. So Exodus chapter 1 begins with Jacob and his sons. That's why we start there. This is God carrying out his promise to Abraham's offspring. Abraham, Isaac, and who? Jacob. Jacob became Israel. Israel's sons, Exodus 1, here they are in Exodus 1. So I want to begin there with you. Again, Remember, this is 400 years after Genesis, 70 people. It was Jacob and his 12 sons and their wives and his kids, 70, were the originals, family in Egypt, 70. But 400 years later, you can have a lot of family. I mean, if your family is is fruitful, and that's exactly what happens. Notice here, uh, we see that in verse 8 of Exodus 1. Look at verse 8 there. It's, pardon me, verse 7. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Sounds kind of like rats or bunnies or something, doesn't it? I mean, look at the description there. The children of Israel were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly. That's Moses and King James English and saying their families were very fruitful and they had lots of kids. Lots of kids. Now, remember the promise. The promise was a mighty nation. This is the promise being fulfilled 400 years after they came, Jacob and his sons came to Egypt. Then look at verse 8 here. It's Pharaoh. This is not the same Pharaoh that was, was kind and nice to Joseph. This is a Pharaoh 400 years later. This guy's not very nice. In fact, he's an evil man. Notice in verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more mightier than we. In other words, there's a whole bunch more of them. Because verse 7, they they multiplied, they were prolific, their family was large. Verse 10, come let us deal shrewdly, this king says, with, with these Hebrews. Lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war that they join the enemies and fight against us and go out of the land. Therefore... Verse 11, here's his decision. They set taskmasters over the Hebrews 
to afflict them, whips and staves and all, with their burdens. And they built, the Hebrews built for Pharaoh supply cities, these two large ones, Pithom and Ramses. Now, I showed you uh, back 14 months ago the pictures of the pyramids. In your mind, pyramids. Who built the pyramids? Who built Egypt's great, great cities and and all of the fancy uh, uh, libraries that Egypt was famous for? A lot of Hebrews. This prolific band of Hebrews that verse 7 says were mighty, exceedingly mighty, increased abundantly. These are the people that built these cities for this Pharaoh. And his plan was basically, listen, we got we to do something about these guys. They're multiplying like, like nobody's business. And there's more of them than there are Egyptians. And if there's a war, then they're going to go and they'll wipe us out. So let's, we got to get tough with them. That was number one. His plan to enslave the Israelites here is, is what Moses is helping us understand. But again, Pharaoh's strategic decision to put them in bondage and, and cause them to build his war chest, in a sense, supply cities, kind of further away from the main city so they could move an army to the supply city further away. And then the army could go further away and push the borders of Egypt even further. You see the, the plan there, the strategy there. He says, let's deal with them shrewdly, verse 10, verse 11. Let's set taskmasters over them to afflict them with burdens. And then notice verse 12. But the more they afflicted, the more the Pharaoh's men afflicted the Hebrews, the more they multiplied. Well, that's God, right? God's working there. And they grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the, the, the Pharaoh and, and all his people, said, this, is, this ain't working. Boss, this ain't working. The more we punish them, the more we're harsh with them and their women, the more children they have, the more prosperous they are, the, more, more, the, the larger their nation grows. This, this plan of yours isn't working. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel slave with vigor. So they get even harder with them, verse 13. Verse 14, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field, all their service in which they made them serve with rigor. That word just, just meaning they had to work hard, sweat. They were hard on these people. They were very hard on them. So God's purpose for the children of Israel's time in Egypt, he had a plan. And, and doesn't this make sense, Christian? How many in here, you come to Christ, you live a few years with the Lord, and your life just gets easier. You, you make more money. Your relationship's easier. Your boss loves you more because you're a Christian. You've been a Christian. You're, you're born again. Everything in your life is perfect. Everything goes smooth. Now, would anybody raise their hand and say, that's me? I, I Don't do it. That's a mistake. That's not. We realize as Christians that, that God allows things in our lives. He allows trials and hardships. Why? Why does God do that? Trials and hardships help us to grow. Gee, Pastor, do, do, do I have to admit that? Yeah, you, you know, that's exactly where, how it is. It's that way in the Old Testament, and it's that way in the New Testament. Think of the life of Paul, the Apostle Paul. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten and left for dead outside of cities. And he says, I count it all joy that I find myself in prison 
worshiping at midnight with Silas as the earthquake opens the door, you know, and he's set free. He counts it a joy because he knows that in trials and difficulty and temptation, that he, he's able to grow closer and closer to the Lord. This is how God causes us to grow. So when we see in Exodus 1 the hardships of the nation of Israel, we should key into this truth that God is shaping them for something wonderful. God is going to use these people for something special, which is what we've been studying the past year. So God is preparing his nation from this small group of people, 70, to this several million, some believe up to four million Hebrews at this point in time. Notice verse 15. So the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Sapphira and the other was Pua. And he says to them, so there's some kind of midwives. There's, there's a hospital for Hebrew babies. There's so many babies coming out, they have a hospital for them. And these two are like the, 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 they're over the whole midwife arrangement to help the Hebrews birth their children. So these are nurses, I would, I would suggest. And so Pharaoh goes to them and he says, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, kill him. If it's a daughter, then she can live. Wow. Pharaoh, the king, he commands everybody. He can kill anybody at any time. He goes into the hospital where the Jewish babies are born. And he orders all the males to be killed. Why? He's trying to control the population. The Hebrews are mighty. They're, they're multiplying like bunnies, as I said. They're, they, and and they wanna, he wants to control this. So he's, he's ordering the death, the execution of these, these little boys here. So it's very interesting that these two Hebrews would listen to him. And we find out wonderfully here that they, they don't listen to them. But, but again, he's trying to control the population there, the Hebrews. The, the underlying plan is to exterminate the Jews. Where have we heard that before? Hasn't that always been Satan's plan to exterminate by genocide? the Jewish nation. We've seen it. It's historic. We, we look back at it now, the Holocaust, the genesis. That's Satan. Pharaoh, this Pharaoh here is, is filled with nothing but hatred and evil and Satan, and he's trying to exterminate the Jews here. And when you think about it, this is all part of God's plan of redemption. Remember, I've mentioned this over and over this past month. Genesis chapter 3, the seed, the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is going to crush Satan. Here's the verse behind me on the screen where in Genesis 3.15, judgment against the serpent who beguiled Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. The seed is the, the, the important point here. And the seed, he, notice the word he, shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. You as a serpent, he's cursed the serpent. He's going to crawl on his belly. He's going to be able to nibble the heel of the seed of the woman. Meaning that all he can do is, is hassle. And, and in uh, uh, the New Testament, we know that Jesus went to the cross willingly 
Satan did all he could to beat and and uh, Jesus went through excruciating torture, as we know. That's the bruising of his heel. But the promise here is that her seed will crush your head. That Satan is going to find his doom in the seed. That's why this Pharaoh, inspired by Satan, is trying to kill these babies. Satan has always tried to kill the seed. That's what genocide is all about. Satan knows he's doomed. And Satan knows this seed will one day come and crush his head that he's doomed. In verse 17 here, notice in verse 17 of Exodus 1, the midwives, they bravely obey God, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh there. But that doesn't stop this evil, satanic Pharaoh here. Because go all the way down to verse 22. Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son whom is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So Pharaoh's plan is a little more diabolical. So now we want you to drown your babies in the river, throw them in the river, and then make the girls in your family a slave. This is his next step here to, to try to destroy the seed. This is Satan working again through Pharaoh. It's interesting, when you get to the New Testament, when the wise men are told that there is going to be born, there's a star in the heavens, and the star in the heavens is, is, is over this this house is in this obscure village in Bethlehem. And there is going to be born the next king. The next king is coming, the seed in the New Testament book of Matthew. And God, or Satan, pardon me, Satan uses this man Herod to do something similar. Remember Herod. He was the king of Israel. He was the political power there. He hears about a king from the wise men and says, oh, what did you come visiting? Your camels and your gifts. What did, we've come to this king of Israel. It's, it's told to us in the stars, these wise men that had come, the magi. And he says, well, what king? What king? Uh, uh, I'd, I'd love to know. Would you come back and tell me you know, who this king is? Herod with this diabolical plan to do what? He's going to kill this king of Israel, the seed that comes. It's in Matthew 2.16. Here it is behind me on the screen. Then Herod sent forth to put to death all male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under. Throughout the Bible, the Bible's an amazing book, as I've been telling you here recently again, I, I'm reminding you again. In Exodus 1, Jacob's boys come to Egypt and they prosper. The Pharaoh welcomes them at first. 400 years later, after they prosper and they're a great nation, this Pharaoh, this new one, plots to kill, kill all the male babies and enslave the girls. And it seems that things could hardly get worse, but God is working all of this stuff out divinely in the background as we call it providence, God's working in the background. He's providentially working and his purposes are going to succeed. Again, it's all the way back in Genesis 15. Let me show you this verse real quick. Genesis 15, then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be 
strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them as slaves, and they will afflict them 400 years. Again, this is another one of those prophecies written in the book of Genesis came true in Exodus. 400 years later, this, was, this historically became a fact when the children of Israel were enslaved for 400 years, all part of God's plan of redemption. So how did God deliver his people? Well, you know the story. We just studied it for the last 14 months. Remember the 10 plagues. Remember the last of the 10th plague there where God um, threatens the firstborn and allows the redemption of the firstborn if there's obedience and by faith the lamb is slaughtered and blood is placed on the doorpost and lentil of the home, then the death angel that comes that night would pass over the homes of those that are faithfully obeying God and his command to slay and take the blood and put it on the doorpost and mantle. A mantle. And then secondly, God delivers the people through this man, Moses, Moses and the children of Israel, as they're fleeing the Pharaoh and the army of Pharaoh, they get to the Red Sea. And what happens? They don't know where to go. They're, they're, they got mountains in the war, the army coming behind them, and they got a sea in front of them. And then again, God miraculously, he opens up the Red Sea and they go across. The Bible makes it very clear on dry ground, another miracle. God's delivering his people. He's protecting the seed, the seed of the woman through Abraham, the promise and the covenant that God made through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his 12 sons who we're reading about here. Now go to chapter 2 again and look at verse 3 of Exodus 2, verse 3. But when she could no longer hide him, this is Moses, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it in asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, laid it in reeds by the river's bank. And you know the story. His sister followed it down the, the bank and the the, the uh, little ark, the little floating ark with little baby Moses in it, another, another part of God's wonderful plan, gets right down to the feet of the Pharaoh's daughter, and she takes it, and she knows exactly who this is. Um, it's verse uh, 6. Look at verse 6. And when she opened it, she saw a child, and behold, the baby wept, and she had compassion on him. And notice what she said. This is one of the Hebrews' children. She knew. So she had, again, compassion. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse? Baby's hungry, you got to feed it. And so Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And the maiden went and called the child's mother. So Moses' mom gets the nurse and raise her son in, a, in, a, in the palace. It's a miraculous story. Again, God working behind the scenes. And his name, this little boy in the bulrushes in the ark, that was protected as Moses, uh, meaning that they drew him out of water. Moses, he drew, was drawn, drawn out of water. Now look at verse 11. This is Moses growing up. This is Exodus 2, verse 11. It came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out with his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating Hebrew. So he knows he's Hebrew at this point in time. He's an adult. He sees one of his Hebrew brethren being whipped and beaten. It makes him mad, verse 12. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Instead of trusting God, instead of walking in the ways of God, 
he erupts in anger and he kills the Egyptian. And then he's sent into the desert. Forty years he grows up in Egypt, slays a man. Forty years he goes into the desert of Midian. And there God is training and and helping. And and through trials and difficulties, God is training this man so he can come back one day and deliver God's people from their bondage. Now jump to chapter 25. Go all the way to chapter 25 of Exodus. And this is where we've been for the last, I don't know, six months. The people have been delivered by Moses. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they're at Mount Sinai. They're watching Moses go up and down and up and down. He goes up to meet God. Clouds come over. The earth shakes. They're fearful. These people that are camped, two million of them at the base of Mount Sinai as Moses goes up and down. And Moses becomes this wonderful mediator, this wonderful type of Christ as he mediates between God who's on the mountain and the people, the sinful people, I might add, down in the valley. Moses, he goes up and down in between them, bringing to them the Ten Commandments. And then God tells Moses, listen, I want to dwell with you. This has been my plan all along. I want to dwell with you. And so this is what I want you to build. And again, remember, this is where we've been the last six months. The building of the tabernacle, the importance of the tabernacle, the beauty of the tabernacle, all the pieces and the parts and the furnishings of the tabernacle. And we've been studying that for really many months. God commanded Moses to build a tabernacle, and the tabernacle symbolizes God dwelling. It's a dwelling place for God among his people. Tabernacle is the movable sanctuary But the whole purpose of the tabernacle is God wants to be with his people. Look at verse 8 of chapter 25. He says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Go to chapter 29, verse 45. Chapter 29, Exodus 29, verse 45, where God says, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. Chapter 29, verse 46. Again, this is God's whole plan to dwell with his people. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, 2946, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So God wants the people to know him. God wants to dwell with his people, and he wants to take care of them. I want to be your God. I want to protect you and preserve you. That's been God's plan all along. When you read the Bible, and I've said this many times as we've gone through Exodus, I've said it several times on Sunday morning. When you read the Bible, you can't help but read the Old and New Testament and understand that God wants a relationship with you. God wants to be with you. God isn't aloof. He isn't apart. He isn't three bazillion miles away and he doesn't take any consideration or care about what happens on this planet. No, God is intimately involved in what goes on here. Why? Because you're here. He wants to dwell with you. This has always been his heart. This has always been his plan. He walked in the garden with Adam, as you recall. He showed himself to Abraham and Moses. And now we're going to see... 
next week. We'll get there next week. He's going to inhabit the tabernacle and be with his people. It's a miraculous truth. It's a beautiful truth that we see. But all of that points to the one who would come, the Messiah, the prophesied one who one day would come and set all things right, Jesus Christ. In Philippians, Paul says this. Look at this verse behind me, Philippians 2, verse 7. But Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus came as a man to dwell. He came to dwell with us. This has been God's plan all along. I'm glad you're studying this with me. I'm glad you're seeing these truths. Sometimes I might belabor a point or I might take too long to get to a point, but I hope that you're getting it. I hope that you're excited about the things that we're studying because the truth is is Jesus is the seed of the woman that's been preserved in the Old Testament by God. Miraculously, wouldn't you say? As we read all of these wonderful Old Testament accounts, God is preserving a people and a seed in the Old Testament. And from those people, the Jews, come a Jew, a Jewish boy, born of a virgin, this wonderful immaculate conception of the Holy Spirit and a woman, so that he then could be sinless and bear the sins of, and be that Pascal lamb, that lamb that was slain by the Hebrews when they were in Egypt and thereby preserving life as the death angel went over them, preserving life. Jesus becomes our Passover lamb. He's the seed of the woman. He's the one that came to crush Satan. God wants to live with his people. And and the truth is, One day he'll be here physically, but right now he lives in us. We have the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus in us. That's the beautiful thing. The temple is here. We've been reading about the external temple, but one day, I love the fact that that we are going to see him. We're going to be in his presence. He's going to rule with righteousness. Remember Isaiah 53 uh, of his government, there there shall be no end. He's going to rule and reign. In Revelation 21, notice this verse behind me. Then I, John, saw a new city, the holy city, Jerusalem, new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. This is this wonderful, glorious place that all believers in Christ will end up one day with Jesus. Again, We're in this book of Exodus. We're finishing our study. We've seen the glorious building and construction of the tabernacle. God wants it special. It's it's a glorious building. The furnishings are covered with gold. And and, and Baziel, the the builder, the the craftsman, has artistically uh, put horns and gold uh, rosettes and, and, and ornaments all around these wonderful, wonderful furnishings. We come to chapter 40, when this tabernacle and all its pieces have been put in place. And now we come to the setting up of the tabernacle. So now we're in chapter 40. And we're only going to be here for a short time tonight. Next week, we'll we'll finish it. But look at chapter 40, verse 1. 
where we have the setting up the tabernacle and the furnishings. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Now, that's an important statement there, the first day of the first month. Because when you go back to the beginning of the Exodus, you'll find out that it's the same month. So it's been one year since they left their bondage. They've been at the foot of this mountain now for over you know, eight months. They've traveled a little bit, finally got there, and they've been at the foot of the mountain. So they've been there, not necessarily a year, but they've been out of Egypt for a year. And they've been witnessing Moses going back and forth, getting instructions. They built the temple in pieces. And so it's a one year, it's been one year later. And they, they've learned a lot in that year. They've learned a lot about themselves. They've been disobedient in that year, haven't they? God sent the Ten Commandments. And what did they do? They broke them right away. And God in his mercy and his grace didn't give up on them. But God brought him back into fellowship by his grace. And using who? Moses, the mediator, the one that prayed for them. Again, typifying Jesus, our mediator. And so they've, they've grown from their earlier sin. Can I, can I just stop here and just make real quick application because I really haven't done a lot of that tonight. Here's the application for us as New Testament believers. We go through hardship. We go through difficulty. We go through those things because God wants us to grow. Why, God? Why is this happening to me? Because he wants you to grow. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to exercise faith. We're saved by grace, but we walk by faith, right? The Christian life is a life of faith. You, you exercise faith. I don't see it. I don't understand it. I'm obedient to it. And in doing that, I grow day by day by day. God doesn't want you to be a baby Huey Christian. He doesn't want you just to be in a diaper and sucking on a bottle every day. He wants you to grow because he wants to use you in this life for his glory. And you, as a baby Christian, you don't know anything. You're a wah baby. Wah, 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 poor, poor me. And he brings trials and temptations and difficulties in your life to help you to grow so that he can use you. Just like the children of Israel in the text that we're looking at. Spiritual growth is a process for you and I as New Testament Christians to grow, to be more like Jesus Christ. Peter said it this way. Look at 1 Peter on the screen behind me. For a while you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the trials. That's why you're going through it. I go through it, just like you go through it. We're all going through it. But we keep our faith in the Lord. We understand that he's given us those trials so that we might grow for his honor, for his great, uh, glory, and, and his praise. So the children of Israel... Here in Exodus 40, they've learned a lot, haven't they? Remember, after, the, after their failure, their big failure, dancing naked around the golden calf, God wipes out some of them, the rebellious, Korah and those that rebelled with him. God chastises the people. 
says, I'm not going to go with you now. Forget it. I'm, I'm not going to dwell with you. I'm not going with you. But Moses intervenes, and God in his grace forgives, and God is going to be with his people. But they have had to learn. And what did they learn? When God says, I need gold, and I need wood, and I need all the things to build my temple, what do the people do? Remember, what did they do? Did they give a little bit? No, they gave so much that the priests had to say, stop, stop giving. Stop giving your gold. Stop giving your, remember? They responded in a big way. They responded in, in repentance, really. And they gave so much that the priests had to say, don't bring all of those things. So Moses is telling the people how to build, and now they're responding. They're, they've, they've got all the things together. Bezalel has put all these things together artistically, and now they're going to construct this uh, tabernacle. Look at verse 3. You shall put it in the ark of the testimony and partition off the ark with the veil. So they're going to start with the ark. The ark goes first, and then they partition that off. They're going to hide that ark. You shall bring in the table and arrange the things that are to be set in order on it. So we're starting from the inside out. We're starting with the contents of the Holy of Holies and the holy place. Remember the two, the tabernacle, that, that 45 by 15 foot wide tent where the, the two rooms with the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the veil that separated the ark and the mercy seat. So we're setting up those things first and then the lamp and its lights, verse 5, you shall also set the altar of gold incense before the Ark of the Testimony and put up the screen for the door. So you have the veil and then you have the screen that's in the very front. So you go through the screen into the holy place. That's where the showbread, that's where the priest would light the menorah, the big candle lampstand, that's where the altar of incense was. Then there's the thick, thick veil that goes, that separates that compartment from the Holy of Holies where God would come, and that's where God's going to dwell. So they're putting this together now, the proper arrangement of everything. Everything's got a place, and there's a place for everything, right? So verse 6, we see the setting up of the courtyard and the altar. Verse 6, then you shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of tent of meeting, and you shall set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around it and hang up the screen at the court gates. Remember the big outside area? I should have had a picture again. I don't, don't have it tonight. We'll show it to you next week. But the, the beautiful flowing veils that separated the courtyard from the rest of the people, where the priests would do all their work with the, with the various, and we'll see the furnishings here as we move through this, but the utensils, the altar of sacrifice, the laver where the priest would wash before he went into the Holy of Holies. All of that is being set up here in these, these verses. Uh, you shall anoint the altar of burnt offering and its utensils, verse 10, and consecrate the altar. The altar shall be most holy, verse 11, and you shall anoint the laver and the base and consecrate it. So there's the courtyard. So we've had the, the interior Holy of Holies, the tabernacle, the exterior and the courtyard. And now verse 12, the anointing of Aaron and his sons. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. 
You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him, that he may minister to me as a priest. And you shall bring his sons and clothe them with tunics. You shall anoint them, and you anoint their father, and they may minister to me as priests, for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generation. So there's Aaron and his sons, these Levites, that their, their, their job is just to to minister there in the temple. Thus Moses did, verse 16, according to all the Lord had commanded him, so he did. So there's the description of the, the kind of dedication. The temple or tabernacle has been built, the walls have been constructed, and now the priests have their garments on, they've been, they've been uh, anointed, they've been washed, they've been dressed. They, this is a dedication ceremony. You can read about that in Leviticus 8 and 9 goes into real detail, really interesting. But in, in these closing verses tonight, verse 17 through 19, Moses now, who's overseeing all the, this stuff, right? He's watching everything as it's being put together. The, the tabernacle now is, is raised. It came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was raised, verse 18. So Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its boards, put in its bars, raised up its pillars, and he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering on the tent on top of it as the Lord commanded. Remember the multi-layers of fabric, blue and white and dark, and then they had the badger skin, the, the waterproof protection of the tabernacle. So that's what they're doing now. They're putting all, everything's going over the top of the furnishings that were put in there originally. And I, I can't imagine what excitement these people would have felt at this point in time. Maybe they gave a little gold that they had brought from Egypt. Maybe they gave a lot. Maybe they, they were the ones that, that helped, you know, Beziel put some of these things together or put some of the fabric together or sewed something. And now they're seeing it all come together. It's all being raised and put together. It's exciting for them. This is the first time that it's been seen. I can just see it in the desert wind, you know, this beautiful fabric just flowing with the breeze. It must have been a glorious sight. Remember, gold and bronze and, and colorful fabric. The people are just stoked as they sit there and watch everything come together. Now, next week we'll finish the assembly and God's coming. Next week in Exodus 40, that is. He is coming again, by the way, but, but he's coming in Exodus 40 and his presence. It's a glorious truth. These people are stoked. They're ready. They put the thing and, and God's presence is going to come. But I can't help but, again, encourage you and remind you to, to muse and to think and to wonder what Christmas is all about. God wants to dwell with you. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who came obediently and went willingly to the cross, bearing your sin and mine so that you and I could have a relationship with God, an eternal life with God. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what the Bible reveals, the redemption of God's people, the book of Exodus, and the coming of God in his Shekinah glory into the tabernacle. We'll get that next week. Let's pray. Father. We're